Welcome to GW Integrative Medicine, the podcast about disease prevention and health promotion from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health at the George Washington University School of Medicine and Health Sciences. I'm Janet Rodriguez, the office's administrative director. Today, we're going to talk about making integrative health care accessible to the medically underserved with Mikhail Kogan, MD, founder and chairman of the board of AIM Health Institute. AIM is the first nonprofit organization in the D.C. metropolitan area to provide integrative medicine services to low-income and terminally ill patients, regardless of their ability to pay. It seeks to educate the public and healthcare professionals about integrative medicine and empower people by providing them with self-care tools. Dr. Kogan is an assistant professor of medicine and associate director of the Integrative Geriatric Fellowship here at GW. He's also the director of the Integrative Medicine Track and medical director of the GW Center for Integrative Medicine and occasionally my co-host. Welcome back to GW Integrative Medicine, Dr. Kogan. Thank you, Janet. Happy to be here. Dr. Kogan, when we think about reducing health disparities in underserved communities, we don't automatically think about integrative medicine. Why should we be thinking integratively? Well, Janet, communities definitely request the services. We've done need assessment a while back, and lifestyle came up as one of the top choice for most of the communities. And it's the lifestyle here defined very broadly. It, it included access to clean and healthy foods, to the exercise facility and also to parks and recreational space. So I think providing these services are quite important because it not only will meet the needs of the community, but also we know that those are the determinants of health. And patients, people who can afford buying those services, generally speaking, have much better health outcomes. And this is the underserved communities that actually end up heated, end up being... um, basically with the least access to the lifestyle-supporting activities or, or, or access to the life-supporting setup in their life. And so I think for a long time, this was basically not provided at all. Uh, this is not written in the healthcare coverage, uh, Medicaid, and other healthcare insurances, generally speaking, in the past have not been covering those services. So the only people who could afford it people who had an expendable cash. And so we felt strongly as part of the aim that this has to change, that these communities have to have access to um, integrative health and wellness. You touched on the fact that people who are treated with an integrative medicine approach have better health outcome. But also, isn't this approach less expensive in the long run? Well, absolutely. Um, I think... I think it's intuitive, first of all. Second of all, we do have some data uh, coming of Duke University and Cleveland Clinic that that appears to be clearly cost-saving. I think the data has not uh, been universally accepted, or I don't think there has been enough of this data. So that's partially, I think, why we're not hearing this conversation more often. But, um, you know, personally, I absolutely agree. I think that's part of the issue we need to sort of educate not only the communities, we also have to educate general public and healthcare sector providers and insurers themselves, that in the long run, if they begin to cover the services, that they will actually end up saving money as well. And, you know, there's some sort of beginning of changes. Uh, We have been 
approaching several local Medicaid providers, and at least one of them specifically has been working with us because they do believe that it may potentially save money, and so they want us to uh, provide our services to their population. So we're working on this. Now, earlier this year, um, you co-chaired a big conference, uh, the um, Integrative Medicine for the Underserved Conference. And at that conference, I know you all talked a lot about making integrative medicine um, services affordable and sustainable for the underserved. How are you all going about that? Or how does one go about doing that? Right, right. So so this is an annual conference. It's, it's the only annual conference that specifically concentrates on this topic. And, you know, it's a struggle. It, it's, it, there's not a lot of people doing this partially, you know, you don't get really paid as well as in many other sub sectors of integrative medicine. So people who are committing themselves to continue this work, um, you know, they're doing this on large part out of their deep passion. Um, I think the, the most of this work currently occurring on a small scale in the local uh, venues where specific facilities somehow figures out how to get the services covered. A lot of the times it's in uh, federally qualified health centers where the center would get a big grant, um, like the Bread for the City, as an example, which is a, one of our local D.C. organizations, just recently got a HRSA grant, and they will be providing uh, through AIM uh, acupuncture and massage services through that HRSA grant. So that's one one uh, venue. The group, um, Shared Medical Group Visits, is another one where... Um, simultaneous billing of multiple patients, um, their Medicare or Medicaid, whatever insurance they have, allows to have a more money to flow in to cover additional services like the acupuncture, massage, mindfulness, and nutrition. Um, this is probably the most currently realistic method of delivering um, this type of services to the underserved population. You know, and of course, there's also uh, communities that are themselves trying to organize around this topic, and and we as a providers trying to support them. And again, unfortunately, most of what we talk about at the I Am For Us conference circles around, in addition to practical tools, how do we actually do this on a limited income, uh, on a limited budget, but also, you know, how do we support each other when when one person needs something quite specific, how we as a community can have resources. So I am for us really big part of what it does. It provides resources and also connects with um, not just local I am for us members, but also with politicians and payers and other providers that are key in the given area. But I would definitely add that it's a slow process. It's a it has not been ticking up the way we would like. Uh, I think we have been aggressive at trying to bring the services at each local um, environment, but it's 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 difficult. And the challenges are often unique. In some places, the challenges have more to do with uh, physical access to space, and others, it's more about a lack of. Uh, practitioners who would like to provide this work. Um, so it, 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 it's, it's variable quite, quite a bit. Tell us a little bit about what AIM is doing locally. 
Yeah, so we have, um, in the last, I would say, six months, um, have put a great effort into trying to secure Medicaid contracts to start providing uh, ongoing series of medical, shared medical groups to treat chronic medical problems. So we specifically, we're beginning to address chronic pain problem. And I know you're going to ask me later about the opiate crisis and how we think we can play. But this is the kind of a first attempt in our area to secure funding to assure that the patients who have chronic pain can have access to modalities like nutrition and mindfulness and acupuncture and massage and others. Uh, the people who generally benefit the most from these services are people who have chronic pain that is not being quickly fixed. And, the, and it's actually very, very evident. So I think the Medicaid currently looking quite favorable at our applications. So we're in the process of getting their answer. Uh, we've also have done a um, number of events locally where we would organize um, we basically we'd go to another clinic like Bread for the City where we would provide regular services maybe once or a couple of times a month for a limited number of patients. Um, and again, again, this is all <clears throat> based in the limitations are all based in the, in the funding. Uh, so we're trying to breach that right now. And lastly, we've been trying to serve the role of bridging different students from different organizations. Uh, in George Washington University Medical School, Maryland University of Integrative Health, their acupuncture and nutrition program and health coaching, and also Potomac School of Massage. So students are, generally speaking, quite passionate and very eager to um, get involved and quite often utilizing their services when they're already in the senior year and they're almost ready to practice um, can add a lot of value to um, existing structure we have when it's quite limited. You mentioned uh, GW students. Is that the healing clinic students? Yeah, yeah, it's a healing clinic. For a number of years, we've been providing um, twice a month services at Bread for the City Clinic down uh, near the convention center. And we would incorporate massage, um, craniosacral or what's called osteopathic medicine, nutrition, and, and some other occasional services into that work. And the students were the key personnel in this work. So they would do the initial assessment of patients and then discuss the, their assessment with providers and then together uh, help the provider and also observe the treatment. So it's, it's also quite essential for education. So the medical students see that how this is practiced in real life and also learn how to effectively refer to providers how to talk to them. It's, it's a, you know, often it's a very different language. The medical profession has one language and acupuncturist or massage therapist may have a very different language. So the earlier we'll learn how to talk to each other, I think that also is quite an important part of our long-term education mission, which AIM also has as one of the three core principles, which is the clinical, of course, is first, but education and research come closely as a second and third. And, and we want to support local teaching organizations like our own GW in this endeavor. So it seems like it's bringing together team medicine, interprofessional uh, education, uh, integrative medicine, complementary medicine all together. Exactly. Yeah. And, and, you know, in trying to do what has been rarely done, which is 
basically have all of this covered by either philanthropy or insurances and and we're not you know we we can't really we know that the population we're going to is will not be able to afford cash prices that are typically paid for the services now earlier you talked about group visits could you elaborate a little bit more about that because i i don't think people think about group visits when they think about things like acupuncture or massage or reiki right i think that's quite important moreover i think we may we even want to consider doing one of our podcasts on the topic. I think it's that important of an issue. Um, so shared medical groups, or SMA sometimes they're called, um, they've been gradually growing in, I would say, starting maybe 15 or 20 years ago. And in the last five years ago, they really mushroomed into a very sizable chunk of the entire care. Let's just to give you one example, Cleveland Clinic about 10 years ago, they were doing maybe, a, um, you know, a few thousand visits per year. And now they've grown this service to nearly 30,000 visits serving tens of thousands of patients every year. And part of it, so the way this looks is you bring patients together, usually 10, 8 to 12, somewhere in that range. The smaller groups tend to not have enough group dynamic and the larger groups get a bit chaotic. And in addition to discussing educational component, well, let's say you're on specific day, you're talking about some sleep problems and you would want to cover some hygiene, sleep hygiene components. So instead of teaching each individual patient, you can actually quite easily cover the same topic of education for 10, 10 people in the same room. Basically, you're saving yourself a lot of time doing that. And then at the same time, let's say you also want to add some modality for insomnia. As an example, the acupuncture is quite evident. So you can literally um, have one or two acupuncturists and putting patients in the same room. The standardized treatment, for example, could be quite simplified and done a lot faster instead of going from one room to another. So you're literally treating the entire 10 people almost simultaneously. And so the, the model, with this model, if you have a billing provider in the room, MD or a physician assistant or, or nurse practitioner, or, you actually can bill any existing insurance, including Medicaid. So that's why, the, in part, those groups have been rapidly growing, because institutions that are already well established that were interested in implementing this process have figured out that it's financially quite lucrative. So we will be seeing an expansion of these programs in any institution that adopted them, and also probably the same uh, SMA, shared medical appointments, will be adapted to a variety of different conditions. And so I think we are in aim, with, with an aim, we would like to, this is going to be our primary, um, in the beginning at least, our primary activity, mostly because we think it's most financially sustainable. One of the things that I think people aren't aware of, especially people who their focus may be conventional medicine, earlier this year, this went into effect with the Joint Commission. They released a new pain assessment and management standards that will require hospitals to provide non-pharmacologic pain treatment options, such as acupuncture. How how can that factor into the opioid epidemic and helping the underserved with pain management? 
Right. I think I think it's automatically going to basically mandate increased use of the services across all the platforms. You mentioned the hospital, and I think um, the hospitals are you know separate entities financially, so they will have to figure out how to financially incorporate this. The channel challenge for hospitals definitely is that they're on a very different billing model. So, but if they do figure out, let's say the local hospitals it definitely will trickle out to the outpatient so that we're potentially going to see the same modalities that are effective they were used in a hospital let's just take acupuncture as an example you know and, and the hospitals are right across the whole healthcare system if you offer one modality in one place you know you don't have to provide it elsewhere but the patients will demand it so i think a lot of this what we're going to start seeing is patients going to start to get more and more experience. And this is, I think, where the underserved population is going to have the most immediate shift because they, many patients in can't afford the cash prices of modalities. They really haven't tried anything. They don't know how it feels. They don't know how effective certain things can be for their health. Once they do it, they will demand it. They will try to access it. They will look for the places that provide access to it. You know, So they may come to our service, for example, and ask for this. Um, so I think this is, in, in big part, um, initiatives like this, or, or when the guidelines like this come out, their biggest shift in the culture will happen by educating the public to say, look, this is an acceptable method of treatment, and, and we have to figure out how to deliver it. So it's basically then the constituents will go to their politicians, hopefully, and say, look, where is this? I want this service. It needs to be covered by my insurance make this happen. So I do think, you know, I'm an optimist. I do think that there will be a gradual shift. I think that shift should have happened yesterday because we know these modalities are effective for a variety of, especially since we're talking about chronic pain. We know that, for example, for back pain, chronic back pain, we don't have any any effective medical treatment. You know, medications don't work. Physical therapy can be somewhat effective. Cognitive behavioral therapy can be somewhat effective. But those modalities or those approaches are also have pretty limited insurance coverage and quite limited access. So, Dr. Kogan, as uh, GW's subject matter expert on medical marijuana, cannabis, cannabinoids, let's talk a little bit about chronic pain and how those different treatment options could help the medically underserved. I don't think there's any question that medical cannabis is effective modality for certain conditions, specifically since we've been talking about chronic pain. You know, I think in an underserved population, the issue has been a lot more controversial, mostly because of the history of a criminal system injustice and, and, you know, large amount of imprisonment that has been done in in the minority communities simply for possession even of a small amounts of cannabis. Uh, there's a lot of misconceptions. There's still assumption, I think, that the cannabis is mostly utilized via smokable route, which in current system, most of the cannabis is not delivered that way. And it's, it's uh, sublingual use is increasing rapidly and other forms of delivery like oral or, or topical or even rectal. So I think there's a lot of education to be done. I think the costs hopefully going to go down. We don't expect insurance coverage, so that will limit 
access to medical cannabis for patients on a limited budget. Uh, however, I do think the cost will come down. It will be more accessible. Moreover, there are hints of insurance coverage, at least in some states. New Jersey has recently pushed for uh, approval of number of patients uh, to basically say medical insurance have to cover the medical cannabis because it is effective for their pain. So if you can prove that it's effective, they may consider covering it. I think that shift will be slow. I think we will continue to advocate for it. We do think that one of the really important roles for cannabis is not just for chronic pain, but also as a one of the solution for opioid crisis. We do know that it's a it's not a gateway to hell. It's an actually an exit drug. Uh, it does help people to cut down on uh, use of narcotics. We have. Are a, you saying there's no such thing as reefer madness? That is correct. That is what I'm saying. That the reefer madness is hopefully in our past. Although I think, without being too political, I would say that not everybody agrees with this statement. But uh, we have to stick to our evidence-based model and evidence-based model speaks clearly that states that have started utilization of medical cannabis have seen 25% reduction in mortality related to the opiate overdose and opiate, opiate side effects. So, you know, it's a component. It's not the only component, of course, but it's part of the solution to the opiate crisis that way disproportionately hit our local underserved communities and communities all over the country. Now, before I let you go, uh, for our listeners who are interested in um, integrative medicine for the underserved, offering these in their practice or pursuing something um, as a clinical rotation, are there any websites or groups you can suggest, say, join or check out? Yeah, I think IamForUs.org is the first resource to go to. Uh, I assume that a lot of our listeners are not necessarily going to be local, so they may be elsewhere in the country, not in D.C. area. So again, IamForUs.org is a wonderful resource. You don't have to be a member to access resources. It's an open access. There are a lot of different tools. There are a lot of connecting tools, and, and there are a lot of descriptions of local programs. Um, that's definitely one. Um, for our local DC providers, we would love to hear from you. Our website is healthaim.org. And um, for, you know, generally speaking, there are also typically most of the schools uh, that are providing any form of curriculum on integrative medicine would often have pretty good links to their local resources for underserved. But also, let's just remind um, students and faculty at other universities, because many of you have free clinics, um, places where you have students doing clinical rotations and other training. Look for ways to incorporate integrative medicine services into what you're doing. Absolutely. And I would love to add that you'd be surprised how open those centers are they they are on the front lines they do know their patients best they do know that the patient's asking for the services they often don't have any system in place necessarily to deliver but if somebody comes to them and says look you know can i help you to figure out how to provide massage for this group of patients 
they will be most likely welcoming anybody coming to help them with open arms. I, I actually have been surprised that every conversation we had so far with insurers, with uh, local community health clinics, with um, nonprofit organizations that are serving underserved, everybody's like, oh, we would love to work with you. You know, and so and then it immediately goes straight to the resources conversation. But everybody seems to be open and wanting the services. So I think the, the, the lesson here is we have to persevere, we have to move and we have to advocate and, and teach public, not just general public, not just providers. I think that, that the public but within this and basically a grassroots demand, I think, will be driving the political shift. That is all the time we have for today. Dr. Kogan, thank you for joining us. I love being here. Thanks so much, Janet. Thank you. I'm Janet Rodriguez, and you've been listening to the GW Integrative Medicine Podcast from the Office of Integrative Medicine and Health. Be well. Be well.